What's Washington to do about Middle East mission creep? What response uh, from the United States after the weekend attack in Jordan that's killed three of its troops? It's already uh, hit back at Iran-backed uh, militias in Iraq and Syria in the past. But to what effect? And with airstrikes so far failing to deter Houthis from targeting commercial shipping in the Red Sea, how to stop Iran from testing the West's resolve? We'll ask how much Tehran had a hand in Hamas's October 7th attack and its aftermath. And what went down in Paris this past weekend as Israel and its uh, mediators on the quiet, contemplated conditions for the fighting in Gaza to stop? Here's where Joe Biden needs to muster all the experience of a half century in politics. How to lean on an Israeli prime minister who's clearly in no hurry to end the war without uh, the pressure, without uh, easing the pressure, the pressure uh, on Iran. Today in the France 24 debate, we're talking about a Joe Biden who's in a bind when it comes to the Middle East. Joining us uh, from London, political analyst Jasmine El Gamal, former Middle East advisor at the U.S. Defense Department. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, we have visitors to Paris. Benham Ben Taliblu normally hangs his hat in Washington, senior fellow at the uh, Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Pleasure. Thanks Thank for being with us here in the studio. Thank you for having me. Thanks as well to uh, Franco-Israeli peace activist Marc Lefebvre, spokesperson for the Shalom Akshav. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, yes. Shalom correct. Akshav uh, <coughs> a group, which means peace, peace now. now. Peace yeah. now. There you go. And uh, 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 Rafe Jabari, deputy director at the Paris campus of uh, Schiller International University. What are you How are you? Fine, thank you. The uh, France 24 debate, where you can react on the hashtag F24 debate. Last week, it was uh, two Navy SEALs who drowned in the region during an operation. Now it's a direct attack on U.S. forces. Next, well, that'll be the response. Charlotte Hughes has more. This is Tower 22, the military base in Jordan where three U.S. soldiers were killed in a drone strike. Washington says dozens were also injured. The base, which is located on the Jordanian-Syrian border, has been used by special operations forces as part of their fight against the Islamic State group for several years. The Islamic resistance in Iraq claimed responsibility for the attack. The group, comprising several Iran-affiliated militias operating in Iraq, has claimed other attacks against US forces since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. President Joe Biden promised the U.S. would retaliate. I want to point out that we had a tough day last night in the Middle East. We lost three brave souls in an attack on one of our base. I'd ask if you could hold silence for all three of those souls. And we shall respond. Iran, meanwhile, denied involvement in the attack. Resistance groups in the region do not take orders from the Islamic Republic of Iran in their decisions and actions. While the Islamic Republic of Iran does not welcome the development of conflict in the region, it does not interfere in the decisions of the resistance groups on how to support the Palestinian nation. Iraqi authorities have denounced the drone strike, which marks the first U.S. military deaths in the region since the Israel-Hamas war erupted. This is the first time that we've seen fatalities of U.S. service members, and that's absolutely not going to be something that this administration or the Pentagon takes lightly. That is going to prompt a response. Whether or not that's a tipping point to a much wider escalation will depend on, of course, the character of that response. A Hamas spokesperson described the attack as a, quote, message to the American administration. 
Jasmine El-Kamal, uh, the uh, U.S. Defense Secretary in the past hours, uh, saying that the U.S. would take, quote, all necessary action. What are the options? Well, as you said, Francois, the U.S. is in a bind right now. It basically has to find a way to, to respond to these really serious attacks. I mean, this is a tragic loss of life, no matter what your politics are, and, and, a, and an incredible escalation when it comes to uh, these, the, the, you know, the response against the U.S. in the region. Um, and so the Biden administration has to take really strong action. At the same time, they have to be sure, uh, as sure as they can be, that these actions won't lead to an even greater escalation in the region. So you have Joe Biden right now hearing two different things. You have people like Senator Lindsey Graham going on TV saying that you have to hit Iran inside Iran, that you have to hit Iran directly, that Iran is responsible for all of these groups, they're arming, they're funding, supporting them, and so on. And then you have other people who are just really worried, and rightly so, about what kind of an escalation could potentially lead to all-out war. It's something that we've been talking about for months now. What is that, you know, what is that action that's going to tip the scale into something that becomes really unmanageable? All in all, given all of this debate in an election year for Joe Biden, it's just it's he's not in a good place. I, I don't envy him for where he is right now and the kinds of decisions that he has to make. But a decision must be made nevertheless. And a retaliation is coming for sure. Yes. Uh, one analyst quoted by The New York Times talked about a Goldilocks response. Not too much, not too little, just right. What does just right look like to you, uh, Jasmine, concretely? Well, I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? Because when you, these are not, this is not an objective measure. Something that could be just right to the U.S. could be excessive to the to the so-called axis of resistance that's been targeting it for the last several months and vice versa. And so this is why I talk about the dangers of miscalculations is that we actually don't have any objective measures of what is a proportionate response. I would be surprised if the U.S. Uh, uh, attacks Iran directly, particularly inside Iran, not least because there is no uh, tangible proof right now that Iran directed this attack. Of course, we know that Iran is responsible for supporting these organizations, for arming them, funding them, and training them. But the degree to which Iran actually directs these attacks is quite unclear. And so the U.S. has to be really careful about just how much it is willing to take this to Iran directly rather than attack uh, Iran-backed militias and their resources uh, and their locations outside of Iran, for example, in Syria or Iraq. Benam Ben Talablu? Listen, I think there's a whole range of options here, but I certainly do agree that the Biden administration is in a bind, but this is, in my view, a bind of its own making. For the past I would say two years of the Biden administration, you've seen a very lopsided uh, response ratio between the U.S. on the one hand and the Iran-backed Shia militias operating in Iraq and Syria on the other. I mean, just look at the response ratio from October 7 or technically October 17 when the militia started firing to present. It's about 160 to 9 or 159 to 11, depending on what open source figure you count. So even the past use of force 
against installations associated with these militias or even heads of these militias has been insufficient to deter these proxies. Now, that doesn't mean we need to swing to the other side of the spectrum and begin to overtly attack the government of the Islamic Republic of Iran on, Iran, on Iranian territory and commence perhaps one of the world's most dangerous social science experiments in the aftermath of what the region looks like on October 7. There is no straight line from failing to deter the proxy to successfully deterring the patron. And this is the quiet part out loud here, which no U.S. policymaker or even now across the Atlantic, no E3 policymaker is saying, which is that deterrence takes time. It's not monadic. You don't just flip on a switch and reestablish or turn on, turn off deterrence. The adversary has to have a sticky reputation of your resolve and your willingness to use force. The U.S. has the balance of capability. It does not have the balance of resolve. So one potential option could be several strikes, not just, you know, one off. Uh, part of it could be a campaign going after the heads of these militias on both sides of that border, the Iraq-Syria border, to even the fact that this was on Jordanian territory and the Jordanians over the past few months have been actually striking inside Syria at uh, Iran-backed militia positions that are engaging in the production or trafficking of a major new narcotic in the Middle East, Captagon. You could potentially consider a joint operation with them, as well as, of course, more sanctions on the militias, as well as, of course, the biggest elephant in the room. Change your Iran policy. Get out of this JCPOA business and vigorously enforce the oil sanctions on the world's foremost I want to get, I want to get back to the, to, 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 to the Iran question. But first, maybe we should first do forensics on what happened. Sure. No group has claimed responsibility so far. Uh, but on Sunday, a militia called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq claimed to have launched three drone attacks at bases, not in Jordan, but in Syria. The Tower 22 outpost was directly across from a U.S. garrison along the main uh, Damascus-Baghdad uh, highway uh, called Al-Tanf. It's been uh, operational since uh, 2000. And 16, um, if you don't follow uh, where all the, the U.S. has bases, the uh, U.S. has had a base in, there in Syria since 2016. Uh, I personally did not know that. Uh, the, 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 what, what's Al-Tanf about? And I, I understand correctly, uh, Tower 22 is about protecting Al-Tanf. Uh, indeed, in Al-Tanf, there is at least a what the U.S. government calls a deconfliction zone. I think 50 or 55 kilometers in 2017, for instance, when former Secretary of Defense Mattis was uh, chief of the Pentagon, they actually fired not just that Iran-backed militias that were moving into that deconfliction zone, but I think Russian-adjacent forces as well, Wagner-affiliated forces. So the U.S. in this strategic area between Iraq, what are they Syria, doing and Jordan... The legal mandate for the mission, of course, is the counter-ISIS mission. Uh, there is an ancillary benefit to that, which is the counter-Islamic Republic of Iran mission. Now, that's not technically in the legal mandate, but every time the U.S. has used force in protection of these facilities, it's been consistent with its pre-existing legal authorities, but in support of that larger counter-ISIS mission. Marc Lefebvre, your thoughts on, on, on this, on uh, this particular area suddenly drawing the world's attention? Well... <laughs> As an Israeli, I'm mostly concerned about what's going, what's going on in the south of my country, especially uh, liberating hostages, and the concern that uh, there are concerns about the fact our capability of uh, managing uh, wars in uh, three, three fronts, the south, the north, and even further eastward. Yeah, because we've seen since October 7th, the Israelis hitting targets in Syria, in fact, hitting in one, at well, least one they, case an Iranian commander. I mean, commander. They, they have been hitting targets in Syria continuously over the, over the last years. I mean, the, they always try to avoid 
transportations of uh, weapons or infrastructures. So they have been hitting targets in Syria constantly, constantly over the years. This is not new. What is new is the, um, the, target, the targeting killings of uh, responsible Iranian uh, responsible officers or high-ranking officers, either in Beirut or in Syria. As, um, and should the U.S. follow that route now? After I think, what I think, on I think the, 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 the purpose is to test the, the response of the to, to what extent the Iranians are able or capable of uh, responding. So far, I would say the uh, Iranian response to those uh, targeting, uh, targeted killings have been uh, limited. So it's just a, 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 try, a, a, a continuous trial experience to see to what extent the Iranians are ready to go further. So, but it's, it's always delicate to manage. Yeah, that's, that's an important point, Raif Jabari. What, what is the calculus for Iran here? I think for Iran and the regional actors, all of them telling uh, all the mediators that the the key and the address for ending all this conflict is a ceasefire in the in in the war in the current war at Gaza Strip. So all these um, all the tension in south of Lebanon, uh, in Syria, in Yemen, Babel Mandab, and uh, um, goes away if there's a ceasefire. Goes away if there is a ceasefire, which means ending the war on Gaza Strip. What is what I think also is very important to take into account, and what my colleague said, is there is almost 40,000 soldiers, soldier, uh, minimum 4,000 soldiers in the Middle East, American soldiers, in different seven paces. Uh, most of them, they are near to the Lebanon, to, uh, to Yemen, in Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and in Qatar too, which is, there is 10,000 soldiers. What is important to say is, the U.S. is quoted in three major conflicts, the Middle East, the Taiwan, uh, what is going on between China and Taiwan, and the Ukrainian. And to take a decision to extend for an extension of the war is very dangerous for the Biden administration, taking into account the election, the electoral agenda in the U.S. So what I think is... But this is a country with 11 aircraft carriers. Yes, we I have agree. One when it's in dry dock, we have none. I uh, agree. But <laughs> what what is the what is the, the history tell us that is not only the military power that would uh, end wars. Uh, we have many experience. We have the French experience in Dan, in Dian, uh, Bien Phu, for example, in the 90, in the 1954 uh, in Vietnam. We have the experience. We have Afghanistan very recently and Iraq. So military could not uh, could not be a win game at the end. So military is not enough. There is always the war is the continuation of politics by other means. So for me, it's what is important is what is important. What is the best? What is the most important things? What is happening now is uh, uh, William or Bill uh, um, Bill Burns. What he's the doing? CIA the CIA director. the CIA director and the Mossad director. David uh, Ranina and uh, the Egyptian also uh, Secret Service Director, what they are doing now is telling that, okay, politicians were doing a lot of diplomacy, diplomacy did not work, now it's, we need to, to make a deal to de-escalate, and what, is, what happened in Paris is very important. It's the message that war should not be extended, and these are the 
key person, which it gives also a sign that at the political basis, they are willing to go for a deal. Okay, so, uh, I mean, so, so let, me, let, me, let me ask, let me ask uh, very briefly to you, uh, Benham Ben Talibu, do you connect the dots, and we're going to talk about it in a moment, between uh, the ceasefire talks that took place Sunday in Paris and uh, the uh, risk of escalation uh, on the border between Jordan and Syria? Uh, well, I do certainly connect the dots between the eruption of two different fronts, the Iraq-Syria, now Jordan front, and the Yemen-Red Sea front in the aftermath of the October 7 attack and in the aftermath of the Israeli military response. But where I would politely disagree with my colleague is that to not fall you know, backwards into a ceasefire uh, just to beget a ceasefire. The reason I'm saying that is a ceasefire at this moment, even though it potentially could I say potentially, because you would have to trust these actors will act on their word and stand down, even though it potentially could turn off the spigot, you would be essentially having vindicated and granted a veto by Iran's axis of resistance in these theaters to have successfully accomplished their political goal with military means, a la Clausewitz. Meaning here, their goal has been to as cheaply as possible and to prevent Iran getting involved as indirectly as possible, bail out Hamas, right? Israel's military objective after October 7, never again, you know, destroy Hamas or eradicate Hamas or at least defang the military capability of Hamas. The goal of the Axis coming online has been to broaden the conflict to prevent that goal from being actualized. So if you ceasefire, you take a Polaroid of the conflict and you try to de-escalate, you have to A, take the risk that Iran's axis of resistance, which they are telling you they don't control, but I do believe they control, will back down. But B, you just cemented a bad image in the minds of these adversaries, which can again turn on this bigot of conflict to press you for other policy options that they are misaligned with the West on. So this is a very dangerous thing to cement in their minds, particularly as you're trying to cement an impression of resolve and deterrence in their minds. Uh, Jasmine yeah, El-Kamal, uh, do you, do you, yeah. you, you, your thoughts on this? I, I don't necessarily agree on that, and, and I'll tell you why. I think that whether or not the war in Gaza is actually the reason why these Iranian-backed militias have uh, increased their attacks on the United States and its interests, I mean, we've had, what, around 150, somewhere around there, attacks since October 7th a huge increase after October 7th. Whether or not it's actually the reason why they're doing it or it's just an excuse for them to do it, the fact is the U.S. loses nothing by pulling out the rug from under these actors and calling for a ceasefire, implementing and pushing for a ceasefire. They can brag about how the U.S. called for a, for a ceasefire because of their actions, but guess what? They're bragging now anyway about the fact that they're hitting the U.S. in all these places that they're impacting commercial shipping because of the war in Gaza, and they're getting huge accolades back home in places where they're not even popular to begin with, the Houthis, for example. They're using this to gain popularity back home where they're generally not popular at all. So I wouldn't take whether these militias, whether these non-state actors are going to brag as a reason why we shouldn't push for a ceasefire. The fact is there are a million reasons, humanitarian reasons, first and foremost, strategic reasons why the U.S. should have been pushing for a ceasefire from three months ago, not just now. You have 20,000 people and counting, 10,000 children dead in Gaza. The U.S. just, you know, and other countries just pulled funding from UNRWA, which is going to result in further deaths. 
It's causing ripple waves around the region, hot spots everywhere. Instead of going and trying to see how far the Iranians are willing to go, why don't we see how far we can turn down the heat? And exactly do, you know, doing that with the added benefit that you're preventing even more civilians from dying in Gaza sounds like the right approach to me. Rif Jabari. Yes, I just want to say that when I say ceasefire, I'm saying also a political process, which means ending uh, conflictuality. So uh, I disagree, we disagree eventually because what is, if we continue this war, it means more um, casualties, uh, more uh, Israel is pointed also by the ICG, the International Criminal Court, uh, with a possibility of genocide. Um, and they were very clear warning to Israel and to the, all the allies. So what I'm trying to say is there is no win at the moment. Military Hamas and all the Israeli analysts and all the American analysts, most of them, the, the well-known, they say there is no possibility to defeat Hamas, Hamas military. What we, could, what we could do is proposing to the Palestinian a political process that would end the conflict in in uh, between Israel and Palestine, but also would also undermine the role of the non-state actors because what is the what is being said by Hezbollah, by the Houthi, by the Iranian is that um, the the cause of uh, we are defending the Palestinian, but if there is a two-state solution, uh, a ceasefire agreement that goes to a political process, then all the perspective mm. for peace is good. And the other thing is. Just one more thing. So what is important is the, the conflict now should not be taken out of the con context because the conflict of the war in Gaza is a war that came out of uh, a siege on Gaza for uh, 17 years and an occupation, even a colonization with the new government, Netanyahu government. So I think it's the interest to continue the war for the, uh, gov the Netanyahu government and the... Uh, what, you're, what you're describing there is a comprehensive peace plan for yes. now, what they're talking about on a day when there's been brutal fighting uh, around the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus is first a 30-day ceasefire, perhaps doubled, far from the cameras, the heads of Israel's foreign and domestic intelligence services met on Sunday with their U.S. and Egyptian uh, counterparts, uh, uh, along with the Qatari prime minister. Haaretz Coast, an Israeli official, is talking of quiet understandings with Hamas on nearly every subject, indirectly, of course, nearly every, sub every subject connected with reaching a deal. Uh, but, of course, uh, our, to hear our uh, correspondent in Jerusalem tell it, Marc Lefebvre, uh, the um, Israelis are talking down uh, the prospect uh, of uh, a ceasefire announcement coming. Uh, Not the Israelis, the, uh, the uh, prime minister office, uh, which is, uh, there is a difference. Uh, the prime minister office is in charge of the survival of Benjamin Netanyahu. It's not in charge of uh, protecting the Israeli people or in charge of improving the future and ensuring a future for the state of Israel. So every time you have a response from the prime minister office, this is a political response which does not necessarily correspond to the reality of what's going on on the field. But the, the, the head of Shin Bet and the, the, the domestic intelligence services, yes. the head of Mossad, the head of the foreign yes. intelligence services. There are opponents they, of, there are opponents, there are open opponents of Benjamin Netanyahu. So they don't, they, but they, they answer disagree. to him, not to Okay, the, of course they report to him, they report to the cabinet and they try to achieve 
some positive steps forward to ease up the situation against the will of Benjamin Netanyahu. So they have to play with the, with the public opinion pressure, with the American pressure to, to make sure that at least Benjamin Netanyahu is conceding a few, a few steps forward in order to release the tension. But this has to be seen within the frame of a, of a deep and thorough technical, I mean, divisions within the, the, within the, the Israeli government and the Israeli rulers. I mean, we are, we are in a state of disarray, uh, internal disarray in Israel. Yes, there is a disagreement in the Israeli political spectrum. Uh, but, but, so, Benam Ben Talibu, uh, uh, you were not a fly on the wall in those uh, meetings this weekend. Certainly not. <laughs> uh, so, but so then, uh, what can you what can you parse from them? Uh, the, again, the Qatari prime minister is now in Washington, uh, talking up how much they achieved, and uh, the Israeli prime minister's office, as Makhlouf saying, talking it down. Uh, again, you know, some of this maybe all politics is local, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the Qatar-Hamas relationship. But most importantly, I'd focus here on the U.S.-Israel relationship. The Biden administration, as was said before, is entering an election year. There are alleged statements from late last year about the U.S. Uh, uh, Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, saying the Israelis don't have enough credit for a continued military operation in Gaza. There's talks now about Israelis offering more ceasefire proposals. The goal, the overall goal of the Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis its partner there, vis-a-vis -vis Israel, is to try to create an off-ramp or limit the scope of the conflict or begin to draw down the conflict. And this is, of course, again, a, a political goal that feeds into a political goal the administration has in Washington, which is re-election. It wants to be able to circle the wagons. It has a lot more domestic pressure, particularly from its progressive left front, uh, from different populations across the U.S. There's a different way the youth are looking at this issue. For instance, there's more Arab-American engagement, mm -hmm. and there's more progressive left engagement. And this ties into a whole series of other debates in not just Washington, but America right now, about participatory politics, about free speech, pre-October 7 and post-October 7. Okay, so let me, let me ask you about this. Uh, with presidential primaries already underway in the United yes. States, uh, and the, the war dividing the, the Democratic Party, uh, Joe Biden clearly stating uh, he wants uh, Israel's prime minister to allow aid in to uh, formulate plans for the future uh, of Gaza. NBC News reporting over the weekend uh, that the Biden administration is discussing slowing down some weaponry deliveries to Israel to pressure Netanyahu. Uh, among them, as you see uh, in this graph, 155 millimeter artillery rounds. There have been regular almost daily rotations uh, of those, uh, and joint direct, direct attack munitions, um, slowing them down. What do you... Is I, that, I understand the political purpose behind this, slowing it down. Is that just an empty threat, or are they really considering it? I'm not sure the degree to which the administration is willing to act on it. Thus far, they've been able to hold the line. You know, the classic 1990s internationalist pro-Israel Democrat voice continues to guide at least President Biden's closest, you know, inner cabinet thinking. But it certainly isn't the view... Uh, of, you know, the, those on the progressive left protesting in, in across America who do want not just a slowdown, but a termination of the, of the USA to Israel for those ceasefire purposes, as was mentioned. What I would point to, of course, is a slightly different corollary in a different theater where the U.S. has been indirectly involved, and that's Saudi Arabia. And again, I'm not a, you know, Israel, America, I'm a, you know, Iran security analyst focusing on Iranian foreign and security policy, how it touches the U.S. issue. But we've seen this movie before where the U.S. actually does scale back aid on a partner fighting a conflict, and that actually forces that partner to use what it has or to use more imprecise munitions. And that movie was called The Saudi War in Yemen. 
so lest we forget, if we are critical of some of the weapons currently in Israel's inventory, weapons likely bought up because they may have th been thinking they need to fight, you know, Iran indirectly via Syria, via Syria or Iran directly due to the growing nuclear issue, which, by the way, no one has been talking about post-October 7. It's a travesty. You've had the Secretary General of the IEA in Davos talking about the IAEA literally being hostage of the government of the Islamic Republic and U.S. E3 nuclear policy continuing along like nothing has ever changed. So in one view is that if you pull back these weapons, particularly the newer munitions that they need for the way the conflict has evolved post-October 7, you may end up underwriting something more dangerous on the ground in Gaza, given what's left in the arsenal. And I'm just saying that as a predicate based on how we saw the Saudi-Yemen war evolve, the more it became political. Jasmine El Gamal, uh, is the Biden administration turning up the heat on Israel or not? Well, I mean, listen, first of all, I don't know how much more imprecise Israeli targeting of, of Gaza can be. I mean, they're using dumb bombs as it is already and killing way more civilians than ever that they should need to be that, that you know, in any normal sort of war where casualties are to be expected, it goes far, far and beyond that. So I don't necessarily agree with the assertion that if the U.S. doesn't continue to arm Israel, that things are going to get worse for people in Gaza. They're already incredibly, incredibly dire. Um, but I will say this uh, in agreement. The, the Biden administration, President Biden, is under a lot of pressure not just from the progressive left, not from just from from uh, Arab Americans, but also, uh, you know, bl uh, black pastors who a thousand of them just wrote a letter to the president asking for a ceasefire and saying we do not approve. So the African American vote is also in play here. They do not like what they are seeing and uh, coming out of Gaza. Uh, you have young people who, the majority of whom don't approve of President Biden's actions and his support for Israel in this sort of indiscriminate manner, unconditional manner. And so you've seen the Biden administration slowly start to react to that, not necessarily in action, but certainly in rhetoric. You know, they're leaking uh, instances of President Biden being, quote unquote, very frustrated with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, with uh, ending a phone call, you know, and not talking to him for weeks. Um, they're talking about potentially uh, slowing down weapons, but we haven't really seen any really critical, meaningful action on the ground to show that President Biden and his team are actually taking what people are saying into account. And that, by the way, includes Democratic lawmakers as well, who have been pushing to talk about conditionality of assistance to Israel. So he's saying some stuff, they're leaking some things, but what's actually happening on the ground is really not much to write home about. Right now, again, there's a lot going on behind closed doors when it comes uh, uh, to uh, those truce negotiations, which are due to continue during the week. Progress made in Paris, uh, say all parties present, despite the Israeli prime minister doubling down on hot mic remarks where he bashed Hamas interlocutors Qatar. As for Qatar, I do not go back on a single word I said. I will not give up even one path of putting pressure on Hamas or anyone who can put pressure on Hamas to return our abductees. Qatar hosts the leaders of Hamas. It also finances Hamas. It has leverage over Hamas. Mark Lefebvre. 
Qatar is financing, is financing Hamas upon the wishes of Benjamin Netanyahu. And the US. I mean, Netanyahu has engaged, has, uh, has, uh, has uh, convinced uh, Qatar to finance uh, Hamas. So this is, this, is, uh, this is usual, this is typical statement of Benjamin Netanyahu. I just wanted to point out uh, a few things. Uh, first of all, I mean, the primary goal of uh, the Israeli people, not only the army or the government, is to eradicate as much as possible the military strengths of Hamas. And we are far from having reached that goal, very far. Uh, so the issue is... So what can be considered a win? So for the moment, nobody has won. No, nobody has won. Nobody has won. So it's, it's a question, I mean, you, if you look at what's going on, on on the field, every day you have reports that the Israeli army is progressing uh, towards eradicating the uh, Hamas network in the area of Khan Yunis. I don't think the Americans will let the Israeli uh, continue for more than a week or two. Uh, either there are significant achievements or there are no achievements. And, uh, and but... I think sooner or later the Americans will say, end of the game, the, the game is over. And also because as, at the, uh, from the issue of the hostages, okay, to some extent, I think Hamas has interest in reducing the number of hostages. Because from a, from a manpower point of view, from the point of view of resources, from the point of view of protecting itself, and the, 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 the Hamas uh, chief staff, okay? The number, the high number of hostages they have is a burden, is a burden. So I think there will be, my opinion is that there will be an intermediary step where uh, with a significant release of hostages because the high number of hostages actually uh, held by, ha by Hamas is a burden for the Hamas. What they want to keep is the high-value hostages, which means the Israeli soldiers, and those ones they will keep until the end in order to, to save themselves. But I think there is also, despite all the statement, there is an interest from the Hamas standpoint to reduce the number of hostages. Uh, but, uh, let me ask you, Ben, I'm Ben Talablu. If there is a truce, what then happens? Because Qatar is saying... This could be the place where we start to work towards some kind of something that's more permanent and towards some of the goals that Rafe was mentioning earlier. Well, it really depends a great deal on what the conditions for the truce are, if they're extended, how long they last. You've even seen, for instance, looking across the region, the Saudis hold together a loose ceasefire with the Houthis, even while the Houthis are now active in this theater as well. So it depends a great deal on political conditions that our friend Rafe here might be able to better cover. Uh, but just saying one you know, footnote uh, to your comments, sir. I, I do indeed think that, uh, you know, much of the defanging operation that the Israelis are engaging in, going after the military capabilities, is probably in the short term the only quantifiable metric uh, of success that the Israelis may be able to yes. put forward, rather than the political metric of how much did you destroy Hamas, I mean, a card-carrying organization or not. But I will point to this, the further the Israelis go, the more actually things they are finding that we never found before. For instance, you know, not just copies of North Korean weapons, but you know, uh, longer range strike munitions. There's the Ayash 250 during this Israel-Gaza war, for instance. Yeah. We've seen that munition fly 
farther, farther than ever before, you know, farther than the 2021 war, 180 kilometers. We've also seen most damagingly, and I followed this Iranian spectrum of unmanned aerial threats, mortars, rockets, drones, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles. The Israelis discover for the first time ever a precision-guided munitions factory uh, on Hamas territory, meaning under those tunnels uh, in Gaza. Until present, all the other members of the axis of resistance were known to have you know, missile capabilities, not rockets. You know, missile being a guided projectile, rocket being unguided. Now, with the discovery of that facility, there is now this question of what else is out there that the Israelis don't know about. And that raises more political angst, which is likely to continue the war fighting, which is likely to kind of do a 180 on, you know, the political conditions for the ceasefire or for the troops. Making it, making it further away rather than closer. But uh, yes. let me ask you, uh, we've seen... Raif Jabari, uh, since last Friday, the same day that the uh, International Court of Justice uh, uh, handed down its preliminary ruling on, uh, on the, the charge f brought forth by South Africa, uh, the charge coming in the other direction regarding uh, 12 members of uh, UNRWA who uh, are alleged uh, to have uh, taken part in the October 7th attack, nine of whom have been sacked, two reportedly have been killed and one they can't find. Um, Israel this Monday claiming 190 members of UNRWA, UNRWA which has 13,000 employees, the UN Relief Agency for the Palestinians uh, in, in, in the Gaza Strip, 190 of them who uh, are affiliated members, according to Israel, uh, uh, of uh, one of the militant groups uh, in, in the Gaza Strip. All this is putting to light also basically who's in charge of basic services in the Gaza Strip, and it turns out that it's not Hamas, really. It's more the United Nations. Well, there is many things here said on this uh, discussion. I think there is, uh, the Anarwa question is very important. There's 13,000 Anarwa members, employees in Gaza. So when you find nines affiliated to Hamas or participating in the October 7 attacks, it's, you could not criminalize an organization because it's not the Anarwa policy. So the U.S. and Israel is taking a pretext of these uh, findings. And I think this is, could happen in any organization on this, in this large uh, numbers. But it also, what I'm, what I'm saying is it throws, not, it throws, the, spotlight, high, high it throws the spotlight on the fact that it's basically the United Nations which is doing the job of what should be a national government's job, right? Uh, look, Running uh, basic services. Since the, since the Israeli politics in Gaza Strip and in the West Bank was very important during, after uh, the disengagement in 2005, a continuation of the occupation and a siege, a very important siege on on all uh, aspects of the Gazan life. And what has happened is uh, the economic situation in Gaza was ripped out. The, uh, the is Israel uh, finished the trade agreement, I mean the, the tax agreement, so they cannot import or export. So they destroyed the agriculture um, sector. They, ag they destroyyed the industrial sector. They is Israel occupation or Israel colonization policy in, in Gaza and through the blockage, which is helped by the international organization, is almost destroy the Gaza economy. And what did the ANARWA and the other international organization is taking the burden of what Israel have to provide to the Palestinian as an occupying power. So what is happening, and when we discuss ANARWA, very interesting. Well, in one month time, Israel have to report to the ICG to the International Criminal Court. And uh, in that situation, if ANARWA is finished and there is no services to the Palestinian, then the genocide 
uh, potential uh, committed by, you know, there is 20,000 uh, 20, Palestinians killed, more than 60,000 injured, Gaza is almost destroyed, then with adding to that uh, the international uh, well, humanitarian well, More simply put, and I'll put it to you, Mark Fett, whose be job very, is it today? Very, very disturbing. In, and in, it, the, in the conditions today, whose job is it to feed civilians well, in Gaza? UNRWA, to, uh, uh, first of all, concerning UNRWA, I think uh, the token has fallen because it's obvious since many, many years that there is a, a deep uh, penetration of Hamas inside the UNRWA organization. So whose job I, is it I, to provide basic services? Concerning the issue of the humanitarian aid to the Palestinians, I refer to my own discussions with, uh, with some ministers of the Palestinian authorities and also to a, a recent statement of the last French ambassador in, uh, in, uh, in Israel. The, the fact that UNRWA is still there, somehow the paradox is that it doesn't help to solve the Palestinian issues. And the that fact, the fact that the, this humanitarian uh, aid, there are some in economical interests inside the Palestinian society to maintain humanitarian aid in, in, in order to avoid the development of a, of a, of a Palestinian economy independent economy. So the, the fact that UNRWA is still there is, does not help. I mean, it helps on a day-to-day -day basis. It freezes but, the situation. But it freezes and it, and it, and it, 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 it impeaches, it, it blocks the, the, the alternative, uh, an alternative economy and an alternative but model of society. With a blockage, then it means dead of the Palestinian. You know, what UNRWA is doing is providing services to the Hospitals now, they are providing shelter to the displaced, forced displaced Palestinians. There is almost two million Palestinians. Uh, there is one million almost in the Anarwa schools. So they're providing basic services in a context of no, war. No, they provide day-to-day service. I, I agree with you. So, but so it's term, very important. On the long the term, on the long term it, in the long term, yes, we could, we could question it's a, this. It's an obstacle. We could and question there, this, there I agree, but then I'll, it's the blockage. Then there the again, and I'll put it, stop. There again, I'll put it to you, Jasmine Al-Gamal. What does the Biden administration do? Yes. Well, I think for one thing, I mean, look, if there's one thing that everyone on this panel can agree on, it's the fact that Hamas is not a, a good actor. It's a bad actor. It doesn't care about the Palestinian people or the people of Gaza. So let's just get that out of the way as something to agree on. The fact is that as the Israelis continue to punish the entire population of Gaza for Hamas's actions, as the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, and all these other countries punch the Palestinian people in Gaza for allegations, serious allegations, I might add, but allegations that are being investigated against 12 members of a 13,000-member strong organization, what are we doing in terms of moral and strategic thinking? The Biden administration has so far been incredibly tactical. It's been incredibly short-sighted coming not just at the expense of people in Gaza, also I think at the expense of Israel's long-term security, the fact that it is creating enemies far left and right, left and center because of its actions, the, like I said, the hot spots that are cropping up all over the region because of this conflict. It is time for the United States at long last, as well as the UK and these other responsible nations to think strategically, to think big picture about how to start solving the root causes of these problems that we're sitting here talking about from a tactical perspective. Tactics are fine. 
you know, in the very, very, very short term. But when it comes to long term peace and stability, we need a strategy for how to address these issues in a way that doesn't come at the expense of people who are literally starving in Gaza and unable to eat or feed their children or heed themselves in the dead of winter. Strategy, strategy, strategy. And it has to happen now. Ben, I'm Ben Talablu. Quickly, a uh, few, a uh, couple of weeks uh, after October 7th, France 24 spoke with Israel's former prime minister, Ehud Barak, no friend of Benjamin Netanyahu. He said in two or three weeks time, the United States is going to say, all right, it's time to start pulling back. It's January the 29th. When does the United States do that? I think in two or three weeks' time, circa former PM Barack's uh, timeline, is when they started to do what Jasmine was saying, which was the peak of what they would do, which was that's when you began to see the leaks coming from the White House and major mainstream Western and American press about a potential dissonance over the timeline that the Israelis would have left, defining quantitatively what success looks like. But the Biden administration, as you know, hasn't moved beyond that. Uh, and that's wanted kind of support with that older school kind of 1990s. It's got a presidential campaign. It has too soon, though, right? Uh, it depends. It depends on what their strategy for success is. If they want to focus on one theater, if they're going to be tactics driven, kind of like what Jasmine was saying, or strategy driven. There's no shortage of mistakes on a bipartisan foreign policy basis the U.S. has had in the region, almost all of them stem from misaligned ways, means, and ends. And something that we may agree to disagree on here is that, also tagging on to what Jasmine was saying, that there is a difference between the politics in the moment, the policies of the moment, and the philosophy. And one philosophy that is yet to be addressed here, is this something you solve? versus is this something you manage? And this is where the Europeans take a very interesting stance towards how do you manage a, you know, a post-October 7 Gaza? Does that involve the PLO? To what degree are they involved in? To what degree is the GCC involved in? To what degree is Abraham Accords mm. 2.0 involved in? And what is your policy towards the patron of the violence of October 7 towards the Islamic Republic of Iran? All of these remain unanswered for the Biden administration. So there's lots of things impeding them from calling it a win before November of this year. We'll have to leave it there. Much more to talk about, as you say. Ben Ben Talablu, many thanks for being with us. I want to thank, thank Rafe you. Jabari, Marc Lefebvre. Thank you. I want to thank as well Jasmine Al-Kamal for being with us from London. Thank you for being with us here in the France 24 debate.